The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Happy Holidays! From Alicia, Elena, Gabriella, Erica. And the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into part two of this pop-up edition of Armchair Politics. And uh, joining us are roundtable regulars from Armchair Politics. We have uh, Paul Rosicki on the left. Welcome back, Paul. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back to you. Thank you, Tom. And... Joining us somewhat at the at the last minute was uh, East Village Magazine consulting editor Jan Ward Nelson. Welcome back to you, Jan, as well. Yeah, thank you. It's very enjoyable to be together with you guys. Yeah. By the way, during the break, I, I, I did a little research here I, uh, on Neil Burston. I found out who Burston was. Oh, okay. Uh, oh. Our earlier topic, according to what I find here, uh, the Burston Fieldhouse opened in 1923. Named after, was the land was donated by the family members of pioneer Flint real estate worker Neil Burston, who was killed, and apparently shot, in 1916. Um, oh. This is according to Brian Nolan from what he, some statement he made along the way. So he, apparently the, Neil Burston was a real estate guy and was killed in 1916, and they donated the land for the Burston Fieldhouse. It wasn't a and, rent wow. dispute, was it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So I've got this one line here I pulled up here on the, on the website. So, uh. Well, as we wrapped up part one of Armchair Politics today, um, we were talking, uh, taking sort of a poll of the panel of what they thought the uh, big stories were in 2022. And Paul had brought up um, the uh, January 6th special committee, uh, special house committee, that's been investigating that insurrection from uh, January 6th, which is now almost two years ago. Um, but they've been uh, reviewing it all year and uh, talking about some of the uh, some of the elements of that. Let's uh, let's move along, Henry. What what do you think was uh, a, a big story in 2022? Without a doubt. The invasion of the Russians into uh, mm. uh, the I lost my I lost into Ukraine. Country. Into Ukraine, yeah. 
so that's a big one. And there were a lot of uh, tributaries that contributed to that, like the uh, the investigation and and imprisonment of the basketball player and then the release and all of that stuff all tied into this whole circumstance that made the United States a uh, part of the world uh, discussion there around the world. Well, and and uh, the prime minister or the president of uh, Ukraine was in Washington just recently, and I almost borrowed something from his uh, from his speech. The the part where he talked about um, the the money not being oh, yes. a waste, but an investment in investment, democracy. Yeah, yeah. I I almost pulled that pulled that quote out but that was a very winston churchill like appearance i was i was surprised to realize he was the first uh wartime leader since churchill to speak to congress i didn't realize it had been that long since any other wartime president or prime minister had spoken to the u.s congress uh, but there was quite a difference in the height of the two men oh that's true <laughs> that's quite true henry <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is a powerful leader now. He goes out and kills. And he gets other people to kill. He directs. And usually people in the military are considered taller, broader shoulders, and mean-looking. This guy, um, he, fit, he fit the scenario for that. Yeah. Because the people in that part of the world are smaller. Some are. Well, he uh, he's been standing much, much taller since his days yes, as a comedian. Yeah, probably yeah. the tallest man in the world right now. Yeah, I was surprised <laughs> to learn I, that a number of members of Congress chose not to attend, as apparently as a matter of protest in some way. I mean, I'm not sure how many there were, but there were some. Well, there's but been anyway. there's been a a move within the Republican caucus yeah. to say enough is enough financially. Yeah. 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 Well, well I, you know, and I, I have a different thought on that. Uh, I think the Republicans are right there. But they're doing something that we would have to do otherwise. Right. Eventually. Yeah. And so we keep uh, war off of our soil. Not that that's a thing to be proud of, but you can help people in that part of the world defend the, themselves from aggressors. And then the aggressor yeah. in the last analysis is not ours. Now, I'd like to say as the only female in this conversation, I'd like to make a comment about his style. <laughs> I think it's only right, you know. Um, he, I love the fact that he showed up in his war garb. Yes. and didn't put on a suit and tie <laughs> yeah. uh, and stood there in front of Congress in that, like, you know, olive green shirt and those khaki pants and everything. And it's not just superficial because it's like he's always on the job and there's yeah. no pretension to that, you know. No. Uh, I just thought that was, it's so interesting, that style that he's chosen. He He doesn't allow himself to be awed by the situation into changing how he dresses. Just so fascinating. <laughs> and did you notice the, the picture is worth a thousand words? Notice President Biden is begging for him to shake his hand. Yeah. He's looking down at him, but 
and this guy's got a hand in a pocket or close to his belt line. Well, they they did shake hands, didn't they? Yes, they did. It was the picture that was taken. It, it could have oh. uh, suggested far more uh, oh. diplomacy for I, both sides. I loved seeing him kiss Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, well, I, I, I'm sure there's there's much to be made of that, but um, there there were two things image wise. As long as you brought up the the idea of image and the uh, the drab green uh, fatigues that he right. wears all right, the right. time, there was uh, a, a some video of a Christmas celebration in Ukraine where they had a Christmas tree with lights being, being run by a generator. Yeah. Soldiers gathered around it. I thought, that's a pretty powerful holiday image. And, yeah. um, and then there was one that was really subtle that was sort of holiday-related. President Biden standing on a ladder, putting the final touches on the White House Christmas tree. Oh, huh. Hmm, I didn't wow. see that one. And yeah. it was... That boy should not be up on a ladder. <laughs> see, that's... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, that was a theory last year. But this year, he can go anywhere he wants to. He's like a bear. But see, that's the whole point. There's this this ongoing conversation about whether or not the president is too old to run for re-election. Right, and then, right. And then there's this subtle little. I'm, I'm fine. I'm up on the ladder. I'm fixing the Christmas tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it was very subtle. It was just kind of like one of those, you know, behind the scenes in the White House moments with the president and his wife decorating and stuff. But the the decision to put him on a ladder. The decision to put him up on a ladder, I think he walked up by himself. Oh, I, right no, I, I believe that he did. Yeah. But I think there was somebody thinking that through saying, you know, oh, sure. this would yeah. be a great image if we could see you on a on a step ladder, you know. Yeah. Oh, God. You know you know as you say that Tom, I'm reminded of a similar kind of thing when when Eisenhower was thinking about running for a second term, he had had a heart attack, and there was some doubt about whether he was going to run again. And I believe they put him out on the golf course shortly thereafter, ah. you know, hitting a few balls, showing he was getting fit and, and ready to run for his second term. Interesting idea. Huh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, it's hardly the image of soldiers gathered around with bombs bursting in the air, you know, gathered around a uh, generator-lit Christmas tree. But it was an interesting message, you know. There were just some yeah. interesting things I've seen um, yeah. as, as people work on image. Um, you know, then, I mean... Go ahead. I was just going to say, what? Uh, no other president has started out his tenure with the massive amount of problems that he did. I mean, the first time where there wasn't a peaceful transfer of power, where the inauguration had to be guarded, where pandemic. the president, there were, where the pandemic was going on. I mean, who who else has had such a hard, hard, hard beginning? 
Ted there. Lincoln. There's, well, oh, yeah. That's probably well, true. Yeah, you're probably right, Henry, on that yeah, point, I suppose. You're right still, there. Yeah. I, 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 would, uh, I would nominate Truman. Truman? Mm. Because they had dropped the bomb. No, they hadn't. No, okay. yes. No, that was Truman's decision after after Roosevelt no. died. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a, Truman is in power yeah. when he dropped the bomb. That's a tough first year on the job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, tough. Yeah, boy, oh, boy. But, you know, I mean, I think to see him, although it horrifies me that he was up on a ladder, I it to think that he's got enough vigor to project that after the, after all of the ups and downs that they have had. Uh, but see, I felt really good about all of this because everybody had condemned him. They had this guy yeah, laying in a right. casket. Yeah. But didn't, yeah. didn't have any, but, but it's, then it's looking more and more like he, he may well run. You know, it looks like they're, for, for a long time, it looked like he was going to, you know, kind of throw his hat, you know, to toss his hat out of the ring. And it looks now he's, he may take a shot at it. Now, guys, you might think, well, I am, I'm supporting <coughs> the president as a Democrat. I well, like the I'm picture. talking about the good qualities that make good leaders, not uh, his political situation. Yeah. yeah, I think, and he comes out with these cool, dark welding shades on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the aviators. And, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They only let uh, uh, chromatic light through. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, hey, doesn't doesn't he have a Corvette or something? Doesn't he drive a Corvette? Oh yeah, there's that. Yeah, there's that. One of the slogans of the first campaign was "Riding with Biden," and he had a was it a Corvette or an old or a, a, a Mustang? I've forgotten, but a sporty uh-huh. car of some kind that uh, he used for part of the campaign. And there were there were yard signs with that image here and there during the the, uh, the last campaign. Uh-huh. And of course, he has a big dog in the back. Who will take care of him off? Right. Who inside the right. Well, Paul, I think that that picture of him standing on the ladder next to the Christmas tree was maybe his announcement. Yeah, I think you could be right. They're starting to think about image and vitality, and you know, yeah, they're, they're yeah. starting. Well, to the, the other thing for. too that suggests he may run is that all his, his big role in, in trying to rearrange the early primaries. To go to South Carolina and Michigan is one of the earlier ones, but to try and shuffle those early Democratic primaries around would probably work to his advantage. So the fact that he was so involved in that suggests he's he may well be looking to run again too. Now this segment, may I interrupt? Uh, we offer the agenda. We're supposed to be talking about uh, the Russians. Yep. This is the yeah we the uh, sort of conversations pretty close to that. Because I think that people want to hear what you're going to say about it. Huh. Hmm. I didn't hear your, your full question, Henry. Well, we should focus on uh, our relationship, the, the large event well, of the year, which is our relation with the Russians. Oh, yeah. No, I, yeah. My, my thought in terms of the whole invasion of Ukraine is that it was a huge mistake for Putin for, for one reason. NATO was in somewhat of a decline before. But one thing that that invasion did, it, it revitalized NATO in a way it had never been before, added several new members, uh, and really made them a far more vital force than they had been during the Trump years, and even before then as well. Again, NATO seemed to be, a, again, a kind of a fading force, but all of a sudden now, in response to the Russian attack, <clears throat> they've really become far more 
energetic and far more vital. So I say, ironically, I think uh, whatever happens in the Ukraine, that that uh, Putin's going to face a far more powerful NATO than he, he would have otherwise faced. Uh, well, and, and I think he, I think he ended up facing a far more powerful Ukraine than he expected. No, that's also very true. That's very true. I think I certainly thought that when they first started, that it's going to be over in a few weeks. They're not going to send. Thought it was going to be like the Falklands. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and you know, um, we're setting on that issue itself. Took us on a keg of powder. We had no idea when ballistic missiles may hit Kyle, Michigan, because everybody's tensed. Nobody's thinking. Uh, the Polish people, uh, you don't want to drop a bomb into Poland. Cause they... Henry? Is there Henry? Oh, we lose Henry? Yeah. Henry? Huh. Hmm. Well. They dropped a bomb on the... <laughs> I guess that I guess they did drop ballistic missiles on Clio. Yeah, maybe maybe on Clio, yeah. Uh, well, hopefully, if if Henry can hear us and we can't hear him, perhaps he'll disconnect and call back in. Yeah, um, he's usually pretty good well, about I, that. I see there's a headline today that uh, Putin is making some noise about wanting to negotiate or something. I I don't think I don't think the Ukrainians are going to go for that. I mean, I, well, you know, it's funny when it first, true. when it first, you know, when it first began earlier this year, there were a lot of people trying to encourage Ukraine to negotiate some sort of settlement. Right. Yeah. And it was the Russians that wouldn't do it. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder within within Russia whether some of the other powers that be have kind of had enough of this because it's doing an awful lot of damage internally to, to Russia. And I wonder whether or not at some point this may be a, a threat to, to Putin's status. There. I mean, true, he's, he's, he's a dictator and autocrat. There's still Henry. other powers around there. Yeah, you know, so I had an interrupting telephone call. Someone apparently in Russia heard me talking about this <laughs> and interrupted my conversation. But, guys, you know... Uh, Russia, Putin can't afford to resign. They will kill him. They will put him on the box, just like Trump, for going out and, and causing all of the embarrassment uh, to Russia as a sovereign nation and all the people who were killed and the enemies that he's made and rerouting uh, oil to Europe, uh, whatever, well, losing th- revenues from I, it. I think There's it's a worthy. lot of... I think it's worthy of mention, Henry, and I think this is kind of to your point, is that um, it has weakened Russia as a world power. True. Yeah. That they didn't just roll over Ukraine. And I think it's, it's weakened Putin as a, uh, as a world leader. If Putin really has cancer, he's not going to back down. He's going to take higher risk. He's got nothing to lose. You're saying he has, did you say he has cancer? Yeah. What you're saying? I've heard those rumors. That's that's what's on the news all the time. This is all speculation on my part. I'm just drawing uh, (coughs) references from other suggestions in the news media. Oh, where did you find news that has experts? 
I'm sorry, Henry. I couldn't resist. No, that, that's okay. That was a good one. <laughs> well, let's let's but, but let's, he, let's move along a little bit. And and uh, Jan, what do you, what do you think was uh, uh, a big story uh, yes. from 2022? I do I do have something to say on this. You might be surprised to know. Um, I feel like we are just beginning to appreciate the trauma that we're recovering from from COVID, even if we're even recovering. Uh, I, I feel like we were all changed by particularly that year of being, you know, locked down. I think we're just beginning to see some of the ongoing damage of it and people trying to recover from it. And as evidence to that, um, I want to just describe one aspect of my recent trip to L.A. Um, we went out there for, not not about COVID, but we went out there for some family stuff that was going on. And in the meantime, we went back to San Pedro, which is where Ted and I used to have an apartment, and, you know, we went back and forth a lot. And I could not believe how changed that basically tourist harbor town was, uh, even now with COVID. Um, like, the hotel that we stayed in, no room service at all, no more. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that might sound like a weird thing to notice, but like that place was like a big tourist draw, and they had um, you know airline crews would always come into that hotel and everything. And it, and it just felt diminished. Like everything felt diminished. Um, there, there's a restaurant in the hotel, and they don't do like regular menus anymore. They just have um, like you know what. A couple of specials every day so you don't have much choice and that might sound weird but like it just felt drained and and then we went off to another one of our favorite haunts to have breakfast and we hadn't seen any of these people for three years we went up to the place and it was completely changed how they had redesigned it to accommodate to covid and it was weird and it was dark inside and the tables were separated you know and and um the the uh, this one server there that we really liked remembered us, which I was very touched by because we hadn't been out there for three years. And um, he said that the chef had died of COVID. And mm. he said there was one other guy that had died of COVID. And I don't know, like, for some reason, I can, I really noticed it um, in San Pedro, this sense of everybody was like, tr- has been changed by it in some way. And so I wanted to offer that. If this was a year of sort of trying to come to terms with COVID, I think some of us are having trouble with it. And no, that's a good point, Jen. I that's, think, my, uh, that's my point. I've seen the same thing in restaurants around here that we've gone to regularly. It is all of a sudden that there's a, a vacancy there and a change of, of the people who used to be there regularly are no longer there. It uh, it really mm-hmm. has had a dramatic effect, uh, effect that we're going to be seeing for years to come, I think. Um, yeah, and uh, just how it feels personally to have been locked up for a year, you know, and mm-hmm, what does yeah. that mean? What does that mean to all of us now? How does it affect how we see each other at the holidays and how we feel about our life going forward? And, you know, if you're old, like <clears throat> my husband and me, um, we worry about ha- has this aged us even faster, this whole process. So anyway, I, so I wanted to throw that out, Tom. I think that COVID continues to be one of the biggest things going on in our in our country right now. Well, well, if you look at it in one sense, I mean, there are almost twice as many people who have died of COVID as died, as died in World War II, Americans. 
uh, in terms yeah. of, of risk, raw numbers. I mean, it, the impact is enormous. Um, Everybody has lost somebody, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you go back, uh, if you don't mind, go back to the thinking of uh, the great Greeks like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and all of those guys. Now, what we tried to do, we said, let us go out and achieve, um, uh, what do you call it when everybody has a disease and they've gone through it? A plague? A plague? No. No, no, this no, no, no. A, he's talking about herd immunity. Herd immunity. Oh, 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 oh right. we yeah, herd yeah. immunity. And we were walking around with masks on. You know, I, I think that that's contrary to uh, achieving the goal that you want to achieve. Uh, if, we, if we, and these are people who not only bind themselves up with hoods or masks on the inside, but on the outside as well. Well, is it, but, that but is, in all fairness, Henry, I think the the mask is a way to hold off the disease until it can be chemically fought through vaccines and treatments rather than you know herd immunity doesn't have have to happen through infection but but if you speak to the swedes and they didn't they use nothing remember they didn't lock down anything. I understand it didn't work so well for them. In that, that's, that's what I've heard, too, as well. Yeah, I, Well, I, it didn't work well for the Chinese. And look what's going on in China right now. I yeah, mean, all of a sudden now with these new variants. But uh, this, there's still some questions to be asked about this disease. And what we need to do is call together uh, people who understand it and, and, and go through uh, a, a completely different of hypothesis of people who understand diseases infections and medicine and let them come up with a whole new question of now we're what here in my house henry we're we're of um sort of two different minds on whether or not it's post pandemic or not it's it's a little bit like one of those michigan michigan state houses um you know sandy <laughs> has become almost completely reclusive and in the last few weeks, I have been much more restless about getting out to do things. Now, I've been out doing more things. I was playing every week at the Hitchin Post, and, you know, I, yeah. I, I went places, but not like I used to. Um, and, and I've felt a real restlessness about that. And uh, I'm afraid I would run into what you ran into, Jan, that I would go to places that I used to go and... They they haven't come back yet. But you have to you look know, at how you achieve her to me. Go ahead. I, well, I would like to make the point that my comment really didn't have to do with arguing strategies for it. My comment had to do with the fact that regardless of what position you take, you have been forced to have a position, it yeah. seems, and that we've all had to deal with really essential issues of life and death in a way and and our relationships to each other mm -hmm. in a way that we never have in my lifetime other than that i mean to know whether i could kiss my my husband's grandsons when we were out there i mean is this you know I, and stuff like that i just so i don't i don't i'm not proposing that we would reopen the argument about mass versus no mass or something like that or um, i mean although i think there is a tragedy 
in yeah. there because the people who are still getting sick from COVID are far more Republicans than Democrats. Yes. Which I just that's because just they don't wear a mask. I, I just think that's well, and it's also about the the debate over uh, to vaccinate yeah. or not. To vaccinate. Vaccines as well right, make right, a big difference right. as well. But yes. so, do you see my point though that I'm trying to make that it, sure. it's not just about what position you take, but the fact that you've had to take a position that could have something to do with your life, you know, in a very direct yeah. way. I, I just and, think that's changed us. And that's a great point. It has nothing to do about. Uh, no, I think it's changed our society in many ways. We yeah. just we just think of, of each other in very different ways than we had before. Right. Yeah. But you know, this, I this mean, uh, the place that when I got COVID, when Ted and I got COVID last summer, finally we did. You know, um, I believe that I know where I got it, and it was at an event I went to at somebody's house, and it was like one of the first times that I had gone out. You know, uh, to a social thing. And um, the the person's house that had it, and it was like a really sweet event. And in fact, Dr. Bobby himself was actually in this, there at this thing. But there was somebody there who was coughing and said, and wasn't wearing a mask, and said, <laughs> A Republican. I, I've had a cough <laughs> for all these months, this person told me. For like, you know, and I'm like, well, <laughs> Is it COVID? And he and he said no, it's not. Well, I came home and I know? came down with COVID, and and I here's my one of my points is I felt so sad because every time I drive by that house, which is in my neighborhood, I still think, God damn it, I got COVID from that sweet <laughs> event. That yeah, oh, you're too funny. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. But but how many of us have followed the rules that they uh, that the CDC asks us to wash your hands after every after you uh, eat or after you go to the bathroom or if you pick up a stick you got to wash your hands and stuff like that and I never did that I didn't do that but I was cautious of you know but there were times when I would pick up things and and. Um, Without water, soap, and and I would, I would introduce them to my mouth, a piece of candy or a cake or something like that. But uh, I must have had the antigen. All I have to say is that if you got the antigen from uh, herd immunity, you don't have to worry about too much. According to well, the I don't know. They they say that even even if you've had it already, it only lasts so yeah. long compared to the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Well, I have both. I I could have both if I'd had all of it. My, yeah. My Jan. What? Jan, had you been vaccinated before you and Ted yes. got? Yeah, great. So now um, it was in June. So we've had since then we've had our booster and a flu shot too, of course. But mm -hmm. um, you know, we both Ted went out. I think I told you the story before, but Ted went out and got had the monoclonal antibody treatment uh, and it was like a 45 minute process of having this put in your veins I mean you know that's how they yeah. do it and his symptoms went away completely within two days I did the Paxlovid thing um, I don't know if any of you guys did the Paxlovid ever but it mm -hmm. tastes horrible you do it for three days yeah. uh, or something like that uh, twice a day it tastes terrible but uh, my symptoms I had worse symptoms than Ted did 
and my symptoms went away too uh within just you know 48 hours or something so would you I tested, as, I tested positive for a while after that but i didn't have symptoms would you um would you say as many vaccine supporters have that by being vaccinated um the case of covid you had was not as bad as it might have been had you not been vaccinated that's my belief yeah that's my belief i, I think that was true for us too about that we had it about about a year ago almost and and it was very very mild symptoms tested tested positive but mild sitting on barely a, a mild cold is what we had even without any other treatment at that time so yeah i, th- I think the vaccine made a big difference hey, you know this is kind of interesting go ahead go ahead uh this is kind of interesting uh to me now um i am around kids all the time and kids uh don't always have the best hygiene and uh <laughs> because they pick the nose and all of that stuff and they don't wash their hands always. And uh, they they have to wear a mask if you're going to class. Mm-hmm. And I'm exposed to kids. And um, and kids uh, so supposedly are just real um, bad situation to be in if you're around kids because kids they can easily carry it. But uh, I never had a problem, and I don't think I gave a problem. We had to wear a mask in class, and some of the kids refused to wear them. And the only way that you can make them wear them is that you gotta uh, you gotta tie the hands behind them. Uh, <laughs> this is in class. This is the class schools. No, this is all schools. This is oh. all all Genesee County schools. Oh. And, and uh, it's kind of interesting that um, that some of the predictions and data uh, handouts did not achieve the results that they had expected. So there's a lot to be learned about uh, the information that is out there of the COVID from around the world. They have billions of bytes of data on that, and they need to go through and sift through it and leave the politics out of it. They need to uh, just simply uh, have people from maybe all nations, all the 25 uh, most industrialized nations work at it uh, and come up with a hypothesis to see what what the new hypothesis says about its origin, its duration, its uh, mutation, and all of that stuff, and the kind of death cycle that it it creates. And I think that somehow we will get to the end of this just like we did with uh, measles and with whooping cough and all of those diseases that were eradicated in the 50s. Or the Spanish flu yeah. back in the early 1920s. Yeah, right. It was a similar kind of thing. But there was just too much politics was, involved in this one. Yeah, I, it, it is. I think you're right. And Henry, I really was intrigued by your earlier comment. You said you hoped you wouldn't live in historic times. No. Well, you think you have. Here we are. You know what, though? I, I remember when I, you know, when I was a kid and JFK was assassinated. And I remember my dad insisting that I watch 
the the funeral and the coverage that was the the first event that i was ever aware of where it dominated television for multiple days and and my dad said in so many words you're watching history right now mm, yeah. exactly uh-huh. yeah. yeah and he was we all, we all know where we were when we heard about that yeah. He was adamant about that, and I could, you know, even though he, he he had long passed away, during the Watergate hearings, I could still hear his voice saying, you're oh, watching wow. history right now. Yeah, yeah. And and I think of that yeah. all the time, and, and there are these, these pivotal moments. Um, I, I'm going to jump in and shift gears a little bit, because there is a topic that I think is going to touch on many topics, and that is uh, the midterms and the um, the anticipated red wave <laughs> that that uh, well wasn't as big as anticipated. It, it right, right. Actually, was almost a dud. The, the Republicans did win back the House of Representatives, um, but by barely. Yeah, by a very small. Yeah, you could it would be a landslide, but just yeah, by by a small margin. Yes. And and I thought maybe I'd I'd bring that up so we could talk about a few things and the reasons for it. But first, um, because it'll be hard to get back to after we start talking about some of these other things, was um, that during the the midterm election we had uh, an election for mayor in the city of Flint. That turned out to be a rematch between the sitting mayor, Sheldon Neely, and the immediate past mayor, Karen Weaver. Um, and it, I, I, I just thought I'd give everybody a chance to comment on the outcome of that. The incumbent won, and by a bigger number than I expected. Yeah, it was, it was I think, yeah. four times larger than it was last time. What struck me is the difference in, in the campaign funding for both candidates that uh, Neely had substantially more funds than Weaver. And this is, this is kind of a visual thing that struck me. So I drove around town, I saw the Weaver sign, many Weaver signs, and what yeah. struck me is all of them were old signs. I mean, they were like kind of faded from sunlight and everything else. And, and huh. uh, remember the issue <laughs> where, where there, was a, there was a bit of a stink about whether or not she could use the re-elect business? <laughs> Because yeah, yeah. and then then they went they went back and re and covered them up with little stickers of one kind to, to cover the reelect. But they were old signs, so I, you get the feeling that there just wasn't the energy behind the Weaver campaign that that I thought there might well be uh, this time right. around. Yeah, I think uh, she was trying to she was trying for some uh, what's the word for it some uh, vindication of her earlier loss and. She was trying to prove that Hillary Clinton advised her well in their (laughs) vision that they had after the loss. You know, uh, East Village Magazine, we interviewed, Tom Travis and I interviewed both of them at considerable lengths. I think our interviews with each of them were probably two hours long each or something. So we got into it quite a bit with both of them. And I, I, when we interviewed her, you know, we provided both of them an identical set of questions ahead of time, just to be fair. And um, her answers were so smart, in my view, mm-hmm. so on target. Uh, she what she came to the interview prepared. She gave really good, fulsome, well-documented answers to our questions and everything. I walked out of there saying, boy, she's doing okay here, you know. Um, 
And she had, she sort of talked about how there were a lot of things that she wasn't able to do her first time around because it was so dominated by the water crisis. And these were, and then she had a, you know, a laundry list of things that she wanted to do if she didn't have to deal with the immediacy of that. So I, I was impressed by her performance for that. Him, on the other hand, we've been making jokes about this. I mean, no offense to him, but he was all over the place in how he answered the questions. And, um, and it was kind of, I mean, it was also almost kind of amusing. Like he was very energetic, uh, um, very uh, into it, but like it was really hard to corral him to give us actual answers to our questions. And we finally did. I think if you read our two interviews, you can see that he did, we managed to wrestle out answers from him about our, our questions. But um, so I just wanted to comment that my experience with the two of them was I felt like as a potential leader, she certainly came through well. And I, and I'm, and I'm not going to say that I'm sorry that she didn't win, but it was just, it was quite a marked difference between the two. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had, so I had, a, had, I had going for him. What? I had the same reaction when I I went to one of the at least one of the debates maybe a couple of them, and in, in general she came across much better in those debates as well, and and early on my my guess was I thought that she would have the inside track mainly because it was kind of an anti-incumbent time and Flynn certainly mm-hmm. had a share of troubles and I felt nearly would get blamed for all of those, so I, I thought that early on in the, in the campaign that she had the uh, the advantage. So I was I was mildly surprised by the outcome. When is yeah. the last time you've seen two candidates that was well matched for the position in the city of Flint? There, you know, there are large gaps between uh, candidate number one and candidate number two. But in this election, there were very narrow gaps in yeah, I, how they performed, what they believed in. Their political yeah. parties were the same, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that might have been a disaster. Because if you had somebody looking at it from a different perspective, you might have had uh, a lot more um, interest and enthusiasm and ways to work toward new solutions. You don't want to hash and rehash the same old solutions that don't work. The city of Flint still has a problem with crime. It still has a problem with schools. It still has a problem with uh, housing and stuff like that. So, guys, there's... what do we drive by going, rehashing the same old problems over with the same perspectives? So, I, so are you are you saying that that's one reason that um, Neely won? No, no, that isn't that, that is that Neely had a lot of support from Lansing. He was the incumbent. He knew the governor, so that uh, yeah, here we uh, and so on and so forth. So he has a. He has a lot of friends, uh, both in Detroit and other places. Uh, well, let me throw out one theory. I, one theory I was kicking around for a while, and I'm actually I can't can't uh, guarantee this is accurate. But my guess is Cynthia Neely may have helped him. That even though she was a, a, a new new to politics in some ways, that she won by such a large margin in Flint for the state yeah. house that she may have carried a few votes over uh, that, that helped him in an ironic way. Probably, yeah. And one other thing that that is um, maybe a little risky to point out, but I think by and large, Sheldon Neely is um, much better liked in more communities 
within the yes. front. Yes, yeah. Mostly among whites. Uh, I think among whites and other ethnic groups, I think that he is. He has that outreach, and, and that's that's yeah. a vital part of the electorate that you've got to try to cheat. If you're only directing your comments and focus to one ethnic group, uh, that's bad. you got to focus yeah. on and, and I, out. And, like and I don't want to suggest that, that, uh, that Karen Weaver um, didn't campaign well or wasn't liked in those other communities who and it's not just black white but um you know there are economic sections and you know other other factors um but i think i think sheldon neely has worked harder at being better liked in some Mm -hmm. of the communities I think you're right there. I mean, just in my I think so too. Uh, in my neighborhood, there were a lot more Sheldon, ne- which is primarily white over here. Uh, there, there were a lot more Sheldon Neely signs, just as one metric, than there were Karen Weaver signs. And we all and this this is a high voting group over here. Yeah. Um, huh. I I think that's true. You know, the other thing that Tom and I have been saying, well, I guess I've been saying it more than Tom is when we went to interview her. Um, she was in the her campaign headquarters was in this place on court this old house you know, former law office on court and it was kind of it was kind of run down you know the whole feel of it and um when we went in there i realized that she had her whole crew there and it's the same old like she got the band back together and some of those people that were there the day we went in to interview her are people that would concern some of the rest of us because yeah. they showed up again uh you know so that because i always felt like some of the people she had around her were not didn't serve her well uh, <laughs> they were probably looking for an appointment or job <laughs> <laughs> yeah there were always those accusations that's true <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. well let's move on to the red wave there have been lots of uh conversations about why the Republicans didn't do better in the midterms, as expected, uh, you know, not just by them, but historically, midterms typically favor the party that isn't in the White House. And that didn't happen this time. And and uh, there's been a lot of speculation about why. What are some of your thoughts on why the Republicans didn't just snatch back both houses of the legislature. I think they just had some weak candidates. I think the what, what you, my theory is that what, what happened was the the Trump endorsed candidates won the Republican primaries. The McConnell theory. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, 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 you know, they, they won the primary, but then they only had a third of the Republican Party, or forty percent maybe, and the, you, they didn't get any independents, and then certainly no Democrats, uh, and a lot of Republicans were turned out by that. So I think winning the primary is one thing, but trying to carry that over to the general election didn't pay off for Republicans at all, particularly here in Michigan. I mean, they had some very weak candidates yeah. for the the top three positions. Um, I'm curious. I want to, and I also I agree with you, Paul. And I'm dying to know what Henry has to say too. Well, thank you. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's not possible on this show. Uh, yeah, uh, the way I look at that, there are many 
perspectives uh, to why the red wave did not occur. And they're all probably equally <coughs> bearing down on the reasons that it wasn't effective. One was the Trump, Trump factor and his followers. They pulled votes away from the middle. And then the, there was uh, also um, <coughs> the, um, uh, the Democrats worked hard. They engaged the blacks and uh, all of the people of color. They got them on one side, and, and African-Americans went out and drove and voted for um, the, the Demo- and voted for the Democrats. And, uh, and that was to be expected. But there were other people who didn't like any of the things. They didn't like either candidates. Then there right. were the independents. And then there were the people who were the insurgents. There were a lot of people talking uh, that discouraged people from voting for one coherent, articulated candidate that could win the White House and represent their point of view. I'm not so sure that we were all sure of what we wanted in that election because we were so... There was too many conversations going on with too many factions. Uh, how, how big an issue do you feel that the, the abortion issue was? <laughs> I think, I think the, the abortion issue was an issue. It proved to be an issue. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, but not as big as everybody thought it was. There were other factors, factors in that. Well, but it did impact. The outcome. Yeah, that's and and it that's a good way to put it, Henry. That it did impact it, and I think there were multiple things that impacted it, but but certainly that was one of the big stories last year was the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and right, and and it it caused a lot of states to to really get caught up in conversations about that as it has become a state issue. And not a federal issue for now. Yeah, and you know we we had proposal three in Michigan, and that passed. Um, and one of the things that came out right before the the elections, when they were talking about whether or not uh, the 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 overturning of Roe v. Wade would have an impact, was the the polling of American people showed that. They were, there was a majority of them, and a fairly significant majority of American people who believed that Roe v. Wade should have continued to be the law of the land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just noticing that I didn't raise Roe v. Wade as one of the big stories of the year in our earlier discussion because it was, it was volcanic. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up now. Well, I, you know, I was kind of holding back a little bit, Jan, and I and I almost sort of teased you with it earlier, and I thought no, because yeah. when we get into this red wave thing, we can't not mention that. Yeah, you have to mention that because what it did, it, it invigorated and incited a lot of young people, people who had not reached the uh, the age of uh, childbearing uh, or at least the marriage yet. And when you when you watch the and so on and so forth, they're watching this and they're they're sucking all of the information in. If they go out and have, uh, let's say, have a, a sex act with someone and they get pregnant, 
they want to know how to get out of it easy right. and without all of the they frustration. Want the they, so those kids yeah. wanted the choice, yeah. They wanted choice. Yeah. And that yeah. added to it. That's the dynamic that should have been thought through by the Republicans before they, and, and, and you know, how you counteract this, but we had no way of knowing what the impact of young people would be. And young people and, voted and, and, in droves. As you watch the, 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 the campaign ads, for, for Democrats especially, I'm going to say two-thirds of them, maybe more than that, focus heavily on the abortion issue as their number one issue yes. during much of the campaign. Um, I wanted to tell my story again about how, but I think it was three or four days after the oh, election, yeah. uh, we had a, a, a young man come in to, we, we got a new TV, and it's and the installer came in. He's twenty five years old. And have I told? I don't think I've told this story before on your show. And he um, he was very excited because he had just voted for the first time. Uh-huh. And we, of course, Ned and I were like, "Oh, that's wonderful! That's wonderful!" You know. And and he said, um, "Well, I had to go down and register, which I'd never done before." And he said, "My wife made me. My wife mm. made me vote." <laughs> and, oh, that's interesting. Um, I said, well, um, and he's 25, right? And they have a little daughter. They have a, one child. And I said, you know, um, I know you're not here for this reason or anything, but I'm just curious. Oh and, and, oh, and he said, everybody in my community, we're all going out to vote in my community. I said, so would you mind telling me what your community is? <laughs> I'm like, I, can't, I don't know if I want to know the answer. And he goes, well, I'm not supposed to talk about it on the job, but we were all really strongly in favor of Prop 3. And so this young, like young people his age, right? Just a yes. blue-collar kid, basically, but oh. his, wife made him, his wife made him. That's funny. For Prop 3. Very interesting. I've heard that before. I, I know I've yeah. told this before, um, but whenever the conversation comes around to voting, um, you know, voting was a big deal in my house growing up. My parents voted in Every single election didn't matter if it was, you know, a school board election in May or a midterm election or presidential. They voted in every single election, and they were always the first ones in line to vote in their precinct at every single election, so much so that they alternated which one signed in first. (laughs) That's great. That's how, that's how dedicated they were, and that was the environment that I was raised in. So voting has always been, to me, a really important part of it, which brings me to the next item. I, 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 have one, I have one point yeah, I want to yeah, add. Go, go ahead, Henry. You know, what, what, about abortion, there was something that could have been done better. They needed to define terms on what all of this meant. Uh, people were confused. Uh, I don't think the Abortions were ever threatened by this by this legislation. Uh, people still had the right to uh, go, have a uh, get rid of a, uh, an embryo, if you want to call it. Uh, I mean, if well, we're on the road, yeah, over. but yeah, but still, even no matter, there's nothing that threatens abortion. In this case, and before the election, people said, "Well, if you got a boy, you have to carry a kid through nine months." No, you didn't. There were exceptions to the rules. There were many people that didn't know about these exceptions. We didn't put a, place enough value and conversation on the exceptions. Uh, about, for example, if we were raped, 
that the baby had a heart murmur or some kind of uh, uh, transferable diseases. They could get, they could, they could abort the baby. There were reasons why the baby could abort, but I don't think that everybody understood that. And many of them said that they were confused by the language. But uh, when they stopped, I, I heard uh, this whole conversation several times on WAJR. And uh, that was the conclusion of those two shows, the Paul W. Smith and, and uh, the one in the afternoon, I forget this. Well, you know, I think I think Henry. What hurt some of the Republican candidates in the statewide level is they were so absolutist on the abortion issue, and there were those those quotes that were replayed over and over and over again that they would have no exceptions at all. And I think that, particularly but for that, those who ran for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, yeah, that but made a big difference. Yeah, yeah, that there were some things that even people who voted on one side or the other said that if they had known it, they might have made a different decision. But there were some things that should have been better defined. Well, that that uh, sort of calls for a callback to George Orwell's quote from earlier about political language being designed to make lies <laughs> sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I don't. I don't feel so bad about uh, uh, Roe v. Wade uh, being. Uh, law of the land. Under those circumstances, I don't. I have no uh-huh. objections, but I, to kill babies, uh, you know, it's, it's just not within my perspective. In my Understood. Uh, Understood. Yeah. 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 Well, well, I've always liked Obama's statement about <coughs> it should be legal and rare or something. Yep. How he put sure. It. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was part of the speech he gave to Notre Dame. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and, and Roe did allow for all kinds of exceptions. I mean, clearly it did not allow yeah. a third trimester abortions, for example. It allowed, allowed those to be banned, at least, in some no. states. So there were, I mean, Roe was not an absolutist thing that allowed abortion entirely under any, con- Indian, any and every condition. It was the uh, compromise yeah. of its day. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Guys, I've seen kids in the classroom... Uh, even boys say, if you give me uh, trouble, I will abort your ass. Hey, right out in the classroom. <laughs> this is what boys oh, say. Now, you know, uh, I've met kids, people I that made how, me, I've, I've met how, people, Henry, that I wished, uh, that made me wish abortion was retroactive. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> well, the, the thing is, kids should feel beautiful should feel good about being born into the world just the way we see the christ child it should be their time to be the best of humanity when they come out of the mother's womb a hope of the world and yet i'm not sure all kids going through this and looking at the fight between over the issue of abortion the kids have that feeling it's no it may contribute to their willingness to go out and take an automatic rifle and just start randomly shooting into people because their the, the lives have to have value to them well, we are going to have an expecta- expectation we're going to put okay. a quick pause here so we can uh, go to the top of the hour for id and then we'll come back with part three and i think we should see if we can't get the red wave to trickle over into part three because there are some some other things that impacted it and some things that it impacted the uh, um, 
midterm elections, that is. So, um, stay right there. We'll be back with Paul Rosicki, Henry Hatter, and Jan Worth Nelson on this pop-up edition of Armchair Politics. <laughs>